Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today, we are moving back into more traditional philo philosophy circles, but we are doing so with quite a few caveats here. We're going to talk about 20th century feminism. Um, specifically, many of the philosophers that have been writing about love, writing about friendship, writing about relationships, and specifically doing so from the perspective of women and women's rights especially. Um, this has been a very profitable sort of subsection of philosophy over the last 150 years, let's say. Um, and I think the feminist movement has provided a lot of really interesting insights as far as how love works, how it relates to the history of philosophy, generally speaking, um, and what exactly love means in a world that is fundamentally gendered on some level. Um, but and here is our major caveat for today. This is not my area of expertise. I am, if you may have noticed, a dude. Um, and as a consequence, I am not going to be speaking from experience on this one, nor is feminism really a like serious subject of scholarship for me. It's not one of the things that I've prioritized terribly. Um, I've taken a couple of classes on the subject, but you know, I am once again heading into fairly new territory um, as far as this class is concerned. Um, but I do want to talk about these thinkers, and I do think these thinkers are important, and as I said with the Eastern Philosophy Lecture, and as I will say again with the Queer Theory Lecture and lectures to come, you know, better to talk about this imperfectly and confusedly and with someone who really doesn't know what they're talking about than to not talk about it at all. Um, I would feel more irresponsible, more guilty for not discussing this perspective whatsoever um, than I would for, you know, bringing it up in my half-assed, stumbling kind of way. Um, and I have studied a few of these thinkers before. I've approached a lot of these ideas before, um, and I've done a little bit of research to buttress it. Hopefully that will be enough for our purposes. Um, but you'll remember that up until this point, we've been talking here and there quite a bit about feminism. Like, we've been reading women writers in this class as early as Sappho back in ancient Greece. Um, and while they certainly haven't formed the backbone of this class, um, we have, in fact, touched on the subject of feminism quite a bit. Anytime that you talk about love, you're going to inevitably sort of end up talking about the gender divide, about men and women, and about their relationships to one another, whether it is, you know, Sappho talking about her lesbian relationships, or, you know, Plato sort of excluding women from love relationships altogether in the symposium, or whether it's, you know, worshipping women for the medievals in, in the courtly love tradition, or with Dante, or as much as something like Mary Wollstonecraft coming out and saying, you know, women are being treated in a radically different way, and this needs to stop or be amended or be changed in some way. Feminism has been hanging around the periphery of our class for quite a while, and with the Enlightenment, with our discussion of Wollstonecraft, it's become more and more prevalent with every successive reading. Um, Obviously, Wollstonecraft was writing from the perspective of women on behalf of women. Um, we had Nietzsche and Schopenhauer both sort of considering women's perspectives, even if Schopenhauer was doing it very poorly and 
very confusedly. Um, and then we got into Freud, and Freud's sort of glaring and wildly generalizing take on how women think and how women experience their own sexuality. Again, clumsy as all this might have been, and in the 19th century there were a lot of problems with the conclusions that we're coming to, what I very much wanted to stress there was this is something that is being talked about. Women's sexuality is a major issue in the 19th century. Um, and from Wollstonecraft on, one cannot discuss the history of love or sexuality without bringing in the subject of how do women experience this phenomenon. Um, fortunately, in the 20th century, things have gotten considerably more equal. Not there yet, for sure. I wouldn't call us there yet. But um, we have quite a few women writers who are writing from their own experience, rather than men just trying to speculate wildly about the woman's experience and what it actually looks like. Um, which means that we get to see a first-hand account of how these women understand their sexuality, their love, their you know, relationships to others. But we also get to see, especially from the perspective of these feminists, how love can be a tool for oppression in some sense. Um, how for thousands of years the sort of default state, the default perspective that people have had on love has contributed to sort of sidelining women and, and causing them to, to be sort of second-class citizens in some sense. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about today, again, you know, I've been trying to provide the historical context all the way that we've gone along, and here I am very much out of my depth. Um, but I do, at the very least, want to talk about the four waves of feminism as they're understood at this point, um, which, you know, I live to see the fourth and the third wave, so, you know, to me this is like still brand new stuff, and from an academic perspective this is absolutely hot off the presses. Um, so we are going to be moving as far into the present as we possibly can, or as close to the present as we possibly can. Um, and that means it's time to talk about the 20th century and the giant mess that that was. Um, but again, specifically the feminist movements throughout the 20th century. So fortunately for the history of feminism, or historians of feminism, the history of feminism has largely been divided up into waves. Um, and this is how it is frequently understood and frequently talked about. And while this is still a very superficial and kind of artificial de designation, it absolutely does sort of simplify the conversation in some ways, helps us all to get on the same page. Um, so with that in mind, the first wave of feminism is actually the one that we've already been talking about for quite some time. Most people point to Mary Wollstonecraft as being one of the major you know, earliest major thinkers in first wave feminism. Um, and first wave feminism basically extends from the 19th century into the early, early 20th century. Um, first wave feminism is, as a consequence, not a terribly descriptive term because it does cover just such a broad swath of time and, and effort. Um, and as a consequence, the major sort of accomplishment, the major agenda of first wave feminists, if you will, um, is sort of boiled down to the real rudimentary basics, namely suffrage for women and basic property rights. Um, so first wave feminism basically includes Wollstonecraft arguing for, you know, roughly equal treatment or at least equal recognition that, like, virtue is the same for men and for women. It includes, you know, women in the 19th century who are arguing for the right to vote, who are arguing for the ability to own property, who were sort of trying to uh, make a case for just a sort of basic set of rights, a basic recognition um, in the 
modern and postmodern systems that we're developing. You know, if the Enlightenment was was all about, you know, all men are created equal, um, all men are endowed with rationality, all men are endowed with sort of scientific curiosity, women in the 19th century especially were sort of very, very interested in getting that all men line changed to all people. Um, that was that was kind of the goal here. Don't restrict it just to the males in our society. Um, and this is important. Like, as much as the Enlightenment is on the outs in the 19th and 20th centuries, as much as we've moved from our modern perspective to our postmodern perspective, it is still modernism that kind of decides the day. Most of the, the government structures that we're seeing in the 19th and 20th centuries are still, you know, holdovers of modernism. Modern principles like equal rights is something that virtually everybody agrees upon, even when postmodernism is riding high. Um, therefore, you know, achieving modern recognition in the age of postmodernism, as late as that may seem to those of us who are sort of trying to parse out all of this history, this was a major accomplishment um, in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And I don't want to downplay that. Like the suffragettes, the women who did work hard at this sort of basic human recognition, who argued that women sh should have a place in society, basically, rather than just being sort of sidelined and kept in drawing rooms and left to only be mothers and wives. This is this is a major change. This is this is a huge shift. If it is coming very slowly, um, and our representative of the first wave here is Simone de Beauvoir. And arguably, de Beauvoir is kind of coming between the first and second waves. Like, she would be really late as a first wave thinker, but really early as a second wave thinker. Um, like, typically the, the sort of cutoff for the first wave of feminism is, is usually thought to be around, like, the 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. Uh, largely because that's when most women's suffrage movements were really getting traction, and a lot of women were, in fact, gaining the right to vote, to own property, to be basically recognized as citizens in their own right. Um, and de Beauvoir is a little after that. Like, The Second Sex is, is written in the, what is it, 1949, so like right on the edge of the 1950s. Uh, but the second wave of feminism really, at least as far as Americans and Western culture is concerned, didn't really kick off until the 60s, largely because World War II sort of got in the way and frustrated a lot of efforts. Um, just because, you know, everybody was getting hyper-conservative in the wake of World War II. Like, any time that a, a nation starts going to war, you can bet that they're going to get a little more conservative and a little more, more militaristic. All of those values sort of come to the fore. Um, so as a consequence, Beauvoir is writing at the end of World War II, in a real sense, or, you know, during the later stages of the European War, anyway. Um, and she is making a very strong case for how to understand women, especially with respect to their sexuality and their sort of interactions with other human beings, their relationships specifically. Uh, but I should also remark that this is actually a really great opportunity for us to go back and talk about Sartre, since we totally forgot about that. Um, and I know while on the one hand it seems a little, you know, backhanded of me to be like, hey, today we're talking about feminism, and here's this really important feminist writer, let's talk about her boyfriend. Like, at the same time, in order to to properly understand what's going on with existentialism, it's probably a good bet that we should at the very least talk about what's going on with Sartre, since we missed that in our Freud lecture, what with there being so much time devoted to Freud himself. What I want to stress about Sartre, and again, I don't want to dwell on him too much, is that Sartre had a very 
alienating and kind of power structure based understanding of how love worked. Part of this is because Sartre is a phenomenologist. He's inheriting the same tradition that we talked about with Hegel, where Hegel has that whole dialectic thing going on, and Hegel understands history as proceeding through conflict, which is, like we said, what Marx sort of drew out of Hegel. Sartre is taking this to the next level, though, because Sartre is following another phenomenologist named Heidegger, and Heidegger is all about this sort of conflict and self-recognition thing. Um, in Heidegger's uh, philosophy and being in time and his other writings, Heidegger is very much arguing um, that we achieve what self-actualization, we achieve what self-recognition, what philosophy we can, typically through facing death, um, through being aware of our own mortality, through the sort of conflict with non-functioning parts of society or things that we disagree with. And Sartre, Sardis, if anything, even more paranoid than Heidegger is on this front. Um, the chunk that we got in our textbook is actually from Sartre's landmark work, Being in Nothingness, which is an incredibly paranoid text, um, and one of the richest in 20th century existentialism. Um, Sartre is largely considered one of the most important thinkers in existentialism, if not the most important at, at, at all. Like, he seems to be the first representative of existentialism. And while existentialism itself is not really a paranoid philosophy, like, existentialism is supposed to be empowering. It's about recognizing that, you know, nobody determines what our purpose is. We, we are not given a purpose. Human beings are brought into this world purposeless, and it is up to us to define what that purpose is. And as a consequence, existentialism, like following the footsteps of Nietzsche and following the footsteps of Kierkegaard, um, very much pre like prescribes radical freedom, um, radically sort of understanding your own place in the world, understanding your responsibilities to your fellow human beings. Um, in one of Sartre's other writings, uh, Existentialism as a Kind of Humanism, um, he argues that it is an essentially optimistic philosophy. It is saying that, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me how to behave. I decide what the Bible means to me. Um, the governments do not tell me what to do. I decide whether to obey or disobey government laws. At the end of the day, Sartre is arguing that we have, we always choose for ourselves what to do. And while we may take information from outside us, we may take advice from, from the people around us, at the end of the day, we are truly and profoundly alone. And our decisions, as a consequence, are truly and profoundly ours. We cannot make other people responsible for our behavior. We must take responsibility for ourselves. We cannot talk about the limitations to our freedom. We are always and forever radically free. Um, we can rebel even if it is just our minds that are able to rebel and we are sitting in a jail cell. Um, Sartre is arguing that this perspective, this philosophy, is not just you know the right one, but the true one, inescapable. Um, and the existentialists are very much arguing this. But the sort of second side, the other side of the coin of existentialism, is that while on the one hand it's saying, yes, do act deliberately, be yourself, you know, do your own agenda, like no one else can tell you who to be, so therefore be 
the best version of yourself, be who you want to be, and no one can else no one else can tell you who that is. On the other hand, Sartre sees that sort of radical subjectivity, that sort of isolation in one's own mind, as being constitutive of his entire philosophical perspective. Um, so you'll notice, like throughout his attitude, his writing on love, he is essentially characterizing this as though it were a battle. Um, as though love is just a war between the lover and the beloved, as each one tries to like get one over on the other one and conquer the other person. Um, so notice on page 228, like the first thing that he says about it, or virtually the first thing that he says about it, is that while I attempt to free myself from the hold of the other, the other is trying to free himself from mine. While I seek to enslave the other, the other seeks to enslave me. And therefore love is conflict in this sense. Um, like read the rest of the text and you will see over and over that this is this complex relationship of captivity and freedom, where I only respect the love of the other if the other is giving it to me freely, but I also demand the respect of the other, and therefore it cannot be free. I want to simultaneously subordinate the other to my will, make them a slave of mine, while also retaining their freedom enough that I feel, you know, comfortable with the thought that they are loving me freely. That's the constant struggle, as far as Sartre is concerned. And if this sounds horrible, well, yes, yes it is. Um, Sartre is basically arguing that, like, you cannot experience love as a caring about somebody else. You cannot experience love as, you know, two people becoming one, as the Bible would have said. You cannot experience love as, like, a union of perspectives or, you know, this cooperation through life. No, love is a battle for Sartre. You are always and forever locked in your own subjective perspective, and what you call love is basically you trying to destroy the other person, subordinate them to their will, while keeping keeping them on just enough life support that you can argue to yourself that technically they're making the decision for themselves. You are simultaneously trying to like bludgeon them into submission while saying to yourself, well, I'm not bludgeoning them into submission. They're doing it because they want to. This is love for Sartre. Now, it should probably be no surprise to anyone that Sartre had a rather weird love life, that you know, his girlfriends typically did not think terribly much of him. Um, and that brings us, of course, to Simone de Beauvoir. De Beauvoir was Sartre's on-again, off-again girlfriend throughout Sartre's entire life. Um, and while Beauvoir is certainly influenced by Sartre's philosophy, she also very much does not agree with Sartre's perspective as far as this is concerned. You'll notice she is not obsessed with this discussion of subordinating wills. If anything, she seems to be very keenly aware that this is a dude perspective, um, that Sartre is writing with the blinders of his own gender on, and Sartre does not appreciate what it means to love as a woman. Um, specifically, de Beauvoir is arguing that men are always understanding love in terms of conquest, in terms of power struggles, in terms of subordination, in, term, in terms of enslaving or being enslaved. Um, and de Beauvoir just doesn't agree with this. Like, she is kind of responding to Sartre in a way, which is why I found it so important to discuss Sartre's philosophy before we get into uh, de Beauvoir herself. Um, so, notice that de Beauvoir's starting point is the same one that we've already seen with Nietzsche. Like, she literally quotes 
Nietzsche in the very second paragraph um, of, of her essay here. Um, so you'll notice she opens, the word love has by no means the same sense for both sexes, and this is one cause of the serious misunderstandings that divide them. Byron well said, man's love is of a man's life a thing apart. Tis woman's whole existence. Likewise, Nietzsche expresses the same idea in the gay science, and she quotes him at length. Like, you can find the exact same passage on page 146 to 147 in our textbook. Um, it's a different translation. You'll notice that she calls it the gay science instead of the joyful wisdom because she's probably working with Kaufman's translation or a French translation that I'm not familiar with. Um, at any rate, the emphasis that she's very much stressing here is that Nietzsche was right, that men and women love in fundamentally different ways. Men demand submission from the woman while the woman submits to the man. These are two fundamentally different perspectives on love. Uh, but notice, for while de Beauvoir is, is arguing that this is the case, she will not know as far as like Shulamith, Shulamith Firestone um, later on in our readings and say that like men don't actually love whatsoever. Um, her argument is instead this is still love. Um, it's just a different kind of love, love to a different degree. So notice the description that she makes in the next paragraph on 234. Men have found it possible to be passionate lovers at certain times in their lives, but there is not one of them who could be called a great lover in their most violent transports. They never abdicate completely, even on their knees before a mistress. What they still want is to take possession of her. At the very heart of their lives, they remain sovereign subjects. The beloved woman is only one value among others. They wish to integrate her into their existence and not to squander it entirely on her. For woman, on the other hand, to love is to relinquish everything for the benefit of a master. As Cecile, as Cecile Sauvage puts it, woman must forget her own personality when she is in love. It is a law of nature. A woman is non-existent without a master. Without a master, she is a scattered bouquet. Now notice... De Beauvoir immediately rejects this. The fact is that we have nothing to do here with laws of nature. It is the difference in their situations that is reflected in the difference men and women show in their conceptions of love. But notice that as much as de Beauvoir argues, no, it is not nature, she is arguing it to a point. She is specifically saying, yes, this is how women perceive love. And you will see those sort of handprints all over this text. Um, probably more than any other single subject in this essay that we have here, in, the, in this or part of this excerpt of the second sex, her emphasis is very much on women's perspectives about love, and specifically women's perspectives about love with men um, here in the 1940s um, and going on into the 1950s. Women have understood it and internalized it as though love requires them to completely submit to the person that they love. And de Beauvoir is sort of engaged in a psychological analysis of what this looks like. As much as we call this philosophy, and as much as it is philosophers primarily who read this, besides feminists and sociologists and other people from other disciplines that are related, you'll notice that she is as much indebted to Freud as she is indebted to Sartre here. Um, she is engaged in philosophy, yes, but she is engaged in philosophy specifically as phenomenology. Let's see how women behave. Let's try and understand what women think. Um, and the sort of, the, the movement, the sort of 
uh, direction that she's investigating here is how women fall in love in the first place, why they fall in love in the first place. Um, and on the one hand, she stresses this has nothing to do with laws of nature. So we are not talking about genetics. We are not talking about, you know, the way that women's makeup is concerned. We are not talking about, like, women as a sort of pre-existent being. There's nothing in the nature of women that causes them to behave this way. This is about their situation. This is nurture, not nature. Um, but because of the power imbalance, because women do not have an outlet for, you know, like artistic activity or, you know, like uh, some economic process, some economic progress, you know, just as Mary Wollstonecraft was saying, you know, when you are a woman and you have literally nothing else to do with your time, when literally all of your energies are spent training to love a man, be a wife, be a, be a mother, and yet at the same time you're not informed about sexuality in any way, like, naturally it's going to cause you to dispose yourself 100% to chasing a man even when you've already caught one. De Beauvoir is arguing something similar here. Um, the restrictions on women having jobs have loosened up somewhat, but it doesn't change the fact that women are still relentlessly instructed from birth on that they exist for the sake of a man, that they must fall in love with a man, that they must serve that man. Um, so notice what she says at the bottom of page 234 in that final paragraph there. There is no other way out for her than to lose herself, body and soul, in him who is represented to her as the absolute, as the essential. Since she is other anyway doomed to dependence, she will prefer to serve a god rather than obey tyrants, be it parents, husband, or protector. She chooses to desire her enslavement so ardently that it will seem to her the expression of her liberty. She will try to rise above her situation as an inessential object by fully accepting it. Through her flesh, her feelings, her behavior, she will enthrone him as supreme value and reality. She will humble herself to nothingness before him. Love becomes for her a religion. And this is the way that de Beauvoir is going to characterize it for the next several pages. She's going to understand a woman giving herself up to a man in the same way that the Christians were describing giving yourself up to God. Um, and just as the men in the medieval period, through the courtly love tradition or sort of like epitomized in Dante, see themselves as loving this idealized perfect being, you know, raising up women to be this, you know, Madonna-esque figure, this Virgin Mary or godlike, godlike character in order to justify their feelings to themselves, de Beauvoir is saying something effectively the same but in reverse. Women, in trying to justify their existence, how much time and energy they have to spend chasing after men, devoting themselves to men, working for men, in short, they will basically divinize the man who they are in love with. You know, they will completely ignore his faults because, on the one hand, if he is faulty, if he is a broken person, you know, what does that say about the woman who is enslaved to him, in a sense? Like, how broken must she she be in order for this relationship to function. Um, it is effectively an act of denial. And again, you know, she ultimately raises this man up to the role of a god. She subordinates herself to do this. And on the one hand, uh, de Beauvoir sees this as a kind of evasion. 
Like, this is, you know, a woman sort of evading responsibility for her own life in that kind of Sartrean sense where, you know, everybody is 100% responsible for their own decisions and therefore nobody can get out of it. This is a woman's effort to avoid that kind of terrible existential truth, that there is 100% responsibility to act in all cases, that you cannot avoid your own freedom in a sense. But de Beauvoir is arguing that in, where men do this by sort of positing, oh, religion told me to do this, or, you know, my job makes me do this, or my boss told me to do this, or my nation requires this from me. For de Beauvoir, it's always a man required this of me. My husband required this of me. Um, I must subordinate myself to another person, and that is the only way that I can escape the fact that I am, as far as society is concerned, inconsequential, disposable. Um, of no purpose or meaning. Um, so notice, you know, in, on page 236, that second paragraph before the three dots, we have, even if they can choose independence, this road seems the most attractive to a majority of women. It is agonizing for a woman to assume responsibility for her life. Even the male, when adolescent, is quite willing to turn to older women for guidance, education, mothering, but customary attitudes, the boy's training, and his own inner imperatives forbid him to content himself in the end with the easy solution of abdication. To him, such affairs with older women are only a stage through which he passes. It is man's good fortune, in adulthood as in early childhood, to be obliged to take the most arduous roads, but the surest. It is woman's misfortune to be surrounded by almost irresistible temptations. Everything incites her to follow the easy slopes. Instead of being invited to find her own way up, she is told that she has only to let herself slide and she will attain paradises of enchantment. When she perceives that she has been duped by a mirage, it is too late. Her strength has been exhausted in a losing venture. So notice what she's describing here. Where both men and women are frequently tempted to sort of give up their lives, give up their freedom to some sort of, you know, higher cause, men at the end of the day are encouraged to take responsibility for themselves, to, you know, choose to follow their own path, to choose their the you know, way in which to submit, to choose who they are going to submit to. For women, however, the temptation to submit is always around them, ever present. Where the man is rewarded for, you know, striking off in his own direction, for, you know, demonstrating his own independence and thinking independently, women never are. And as a consequence, where men, you know, are often sh sort of shown a fork in the road and saying, do you want to take the easy path but less honorable one, or do you want to take the more difficult path that will win you more significance in society, women have a wide variety of paths at their disposal, and there are always, always ways to give up her independence, give up her sort of own virtues, own morals, own perspective, in favor of an easier temptation. And what's more, where men are told that submission will ultimately make you unhappy, women are constantly told that submission will make you very happy indeed, that the only life a woman can hope hope to aspire to, the best life that a woman could reach, is one in which she is submitted to a benevolent husband. Therefore, give yourself up. Always give yourself up. Now, in significantly, de Beauvoir understands love as being this kind of relationship. So notice in that very next paragraph under the three dots, she says the supreme goal of human love as a mystical love is identification with the loved one. 
So notice this assumption that we're making here. Love is identification with the loved one. You want to love God, then you have to become like God. You want to love you know, your husband, then you have to become like your husband. You want to love your wife, then become like your wife. But notice especially that de Beauvoir is emphasizing that while this is what love looks like to women, and this is what women are doing by loving, they become identified with their husband, they look forward to being identified with their husband, they live for the day when the husband says, we believe X, and she is included in that we. Like, she is, you know, her husband just takes her as an extension of himself. De Beauvoir notes that that is essentially one-sided. Um, the man is speaking for himself in that situation. The woman wants to be included in the man's self. But this, it doesn't work the other way around. A man never says we speaking on behalf of both of them or speaking as, you know, an appendage to the woman. The man never sort of gets absorbed into the woman's character, nor does he give as much as he receives. The woman gives all, the man receives all. The woman is always an extension of the man. It is not an equal partnership, nor is the man an extension of the woman. So again, this becomes sort of another contribution to that idolatry that we've discussed here, that sort of raising men up to this kind of godhood. You know, the way that Simone de Beauvoir is talking about here very deliberately echoes Christian theology, very deliberately echoes what Spinoza was talking about, where love is this sort of recognition of one's position in the Godhead. Um, so notice on, on page 237, she says, the supreme happiness of the woman in love is to be recognized by the loved man as a part of himself. When he says, we, she is associated and identified with him. She shares his prestige and reigns with him over the rest of the world. She never tires of repeating, even to excess, this delectable we, as one necessary to a being who is absolute necessity, who stands forth in the world seeking necessary goals, and who gives her back the world in necessary form. The woman in love acquires in her submission that magnificent possession, the absolute. It is this certitude that gives her lofty joys. She feels exalted to a place at the right hand of God. Small matter to her to have only second place if she has her place forever in a most wonderfully ordered world. So long as she is in love and is loved by and necessary to her loved one, she feels herself wholly justified. She knows peace and happiness. So again, she is subordinated to her man. Her man in her mind has been elevated to the status of God, and therefore it is no shame to her to be second to God. It is no shame to her to be an extension of the Godhead. It is no shame to her to be a part of this greater absolute. But notice that Simone de Beauvoir immediately rejects this. But this glorious felicity rarely lasts. No man really is God. The relations sustained by the mystic with the divine absence depend on her fervor alone, but the deified man, who is not God, is present. And from this factor to come the torments of the world in love. Notice, this is, at the end of the day, idolatry. No man is this perfect. No man is this heroic. No man is this divine. A woman who sort of subordinates herself to this man will essentially be frustrated when this man doesn't prove to be as awesome as the god she wants him to be. She will be disillusioned, in short. She will recognize that she has made a horrific mistake, that she has entrusted herself, body and soul, to what is essentially a despot, a tyrant, a monster. Someone who she thought was perfect, who she kept telling herself was perfect, and who she kept telling herself was perfect specifically 
partly to console her for the fact that she had no other choice but to submit to this person, this tyrant, whoever he was, the man, on the other hand, just doesn't live up to it. And when he doesn't, the woman stresses. She gets upset. She's mad at him for not being able to live up to that standard. And as a consequence, both of them are miserable. This is a huge part of what de Beauvoir understands love to be and why love has been failing so hard. Because there are these mountainous, insane expectations on the man in this relationship, because the woman entrusts herself so wholly to this person who she's inflated so much, when the man doesn't live up to that standard, everything crumbles, both for the guy and for the girl. So notice um, on page 238, about halfway through that middle paragraph, she says, This refusal to apply a human measuring scale to the lover explains many feminine paradoxes. The woman asks a favor from her lover. Is it granted? Then he is generous, rich, magnificent. He is kingly. He is divine. Is it refused? Then he is avaricious, mean, cruel. He is a devilish or a bestial creature. One might be tempted to object. If a yes is such an astounding and superb extravagance, should one be surprised at a no? If the no discloses such abject selfishness, why wonder so much at the yes? Between the superhuman and the inhuman, is there no place for the human? A fallen god is not a man. He is a fraud. The lover has no other alternative than to prove that he really is this king accepting adulation, or to confess himself a usurper. If he is no longer adored, he must be trampled on. In virtue of that glory with which she has haloed the brow of her beloved, the woman in love forbids him any weakness. She is disappointed and vexed if he does not live up to the image she has put in her place. If he gets tired or careless, if he gets hungry or thirsty at the wrong time, if he mistake, makes a mistake or contradicts himself, she asserts that he is not himself, and she makes a grievance of it. In this indirect way, she will go so far as to take him to task for any of his ventures that she disapproves. She judges her judge, and she denies him his liberty so that he may deserve to remain her master. Her worship sometimes finds better satisfaction in his absence than in his presence. As we have seen, there are women who devote themselves to dead or otherwise inaccessible heroes so that they may never have to face them in person, for beings of flesh and blood would be fatally contrary to their dreams. Hence such disillusioned sayings as, one must not believe in Prince Charming, men are only poor creatures, and the like. They would not seem to be dwarfs if they had not asked to be giants. Notice what de Beauvoir is emphasizing here. This process by which a woman totally subordinates herself to a man, and in order to justify this behavior to herself, expects everything from him, expects him to be a god, does an incredible disservice to both people. Because on the one hand, the woman is essentially nothing in this situation. She is essentially 100% dependent on the man for everything that she wants, whether it is a good thing or a bad thing. When he gives her what he, she wants, he is beyond belief, generous and, and loving and kind. On the other hand, when he denies this, you know, even though he was God and therefore could give her anything, he is therefore a monster, devilish, you know, avaricious, greedy, uh, and therefore he can't be a human being all by himself. But notice what it does to the man as well. The man is now held up to this standard. He cannot just be a person. He is not allowed to make a mistake in this situation. He is held up to such a high standard by the woman that, who loves him that he cannot show weakness. He cannot be just a person. He has to be perfect. He has to be constantly giving. He has to be constantly generous. There is no choice for him either. And in both cases, they make themselves miserable.
Notice what she concludes in that second paragraph on 239. Genuine love ought to be founded on the mutual recognition of two liberties. The lovers would then experience themselves both as self and as other. Neither would give up transcendence. Neither would be mutilated. Together they would manifest values and aims in the world. For the one and the other, love would be revelation of self by the gift of self, an enrichment of the world. Notice what we are functionally saying here, what de Beauvoir is suggesting and what will be echoed by virtually all of the other writers we're talking about today. The key principle here, as much as there are going to be some that argue against the prospect of love or who change the definition in some way, what we are essentially talking about is that whatever relationship we are working towards, call it love, call it romance, call it sex, call it friendship, call it something else, what we are looking for is equality, an even-handed recognition of both people as fallible human beings aspiring to something better. De Beauvoir says, stop making men into gods and stop turning yourself into slaves. If you do that, the relationship that you will receive will be way healthier than either of the extreme positions that men are put in by women or any of the extreme positions that women are put into by men. If we are doing the whole Freudian psychoanalysis thing, remember that the men who experience that psychical impotency now sort of achieve, receive this divide in the way that they understand women. Either they have to be, you know, saints, goddesses, perfect, like, uh, devoted idols of their, of their expectation and of their admiration, or they have to be debased. And if you become at all dissociated in your sexuality, then the only way that you can achieve climax, the only way that you can be sexually active with a woman, is to debase her, to turn her into something less than you are, because otherwise she's too much greater. De Beauvoir is arguing something effectively similar here. Do not turn women into idols or sluts, and do not turn men into gods or monsters. In either case, no matter which category they fall into, that isn't fully descriptive. Let them be human. Let everyone be human. In love, that is a necessary component to the relationship. Everyone needs to be truthful with themselves and with each other in some sense. And as much as, you know, Sartre's language of the self and the other are in fact reflected here in what Du Beauvoir is saying about, you know, the relationship between men and women, notice that where Sartre is emphasizing, you know, it is the self conquering the other, and as much as Sartre would agree with her position that we are both self and other at the same time, Du Beauvoir is much more strongly emphasizing that we are both self and other in relation to both self and other. Um, at no point is should this be an act of conquest or an act of subordination, an act of submission or an act of conflict. Love should be even-handed, should be truthful, should not look at one another with rose-tinted glasses or with the eyes of a supplicant. Instead, it should be with the eyes of an honest person looking at an honest person. Fall fallible though they may be and successful though they may occasionally achieve, that's the whole picture, and anything more or less will ultimately be to the detriment of the relationship. Love is about equality in that sense for de Beauvoir, um, and that's what she's very much emphasizing here.
So she concludes, and this is on page 240, on the day when it will be possible for woman to love not in her weakness, but in her strength, not to escape herself, but to find herself, not to abase herself, but to assert herself, on that day love will become for her, as for man, a source of life and not of mortal danger. In the meantime, love represents in its most touching form the curse that lies heavily upon woman confined in the feminine universe, woman mutilated, insufficient unto herself. The innumerable martyrs to love bear witness against the injustice of a fate that offers a sterile hell as ultimate salvation. Notice the two possibilities here. On the one hand, we have love from weakness, woman forced into a position of submission, forced into this position of admiration and love, forced because they have no other choice than to do this, because of their weakness, because of their training, because of what society has told them to be and what they are allowed to do. By contrast, what a woman is, should be aspiring for and what love should look like is woman loving out of strength, being able to recognize their beloved, the other person that they are in a relationship with, as being on an even footing with them, as being equal to them, both self and other. In that situation, when she is asserting herself through her relationships, through her love, and not abasing herself, not escaping herself, but finding herself in this relationship, then, and only then, can love be anything more than the sterile hell that de Beauvoir is describing here. Only when a woman is not forced into this position, only when a woman is not, you know, sort of cornered by this, and only when a woman is not sacrificing herself to do this, only then can love truly be love, in any real sense of the word. Now, I should stress, as much as I sort of associated de Beauvoir with the first wave feminism and suffrage and so on, you know, notice that her focus here is much more on the relational aspects, and that does, as much as it, you know, time-wise precedes it, this does sort of associate her more with second wave feminism than with first wave feminism. Second wave feminism largely picked up speed in the 1960s, and trust me, most second wave feminists had read The Second Sex and you know, considered it sort of like this crucial text for understanding women's relationships. Second wave feminism was all about these sorts of relationship issues, much more than it was about suffrage or you know, basic human recognition. This was a recognition by women and, and sort of an emphasis on, uh, that women were, were making that the relationships that women were involved in, the sexuality that women were involved in, the love and the, the sort of you know world that had typically been associated with women now needed to evolve, now needed to be at the center of the feminist movement. Um, second wave feminism, first wave feminism had reformed the basic way that women were perceived, but it was fundamentally conservative. It was not pushing morality itself forward. It was not pushing society itself forward. It was basically taking a step back into the Enlightenment and saying, hey, if in fact you intend to give Enlightenment values to all men, why not give them to all women as well? Here in second wave feminism, feminism is taking a much more postmodern stance. It is in fact pushing society forward. It is trying to change, trying to reform, trying to modify the way we understand our relationships, uh, our obligations to one another, and how sexuality itself should work. So where first wave feminism was much more about the legal dimensions of, you know, how, how women 
women work and how women are perceived, the second wave feminism largely pushed things that had largely been considered outside of the realm of legal perspective, things that were normally considered very private, and made them public, made them sort of central to public eye and public experience. Um, and we were talking especially about sexuality, exactly how sex works and what sex can and should look like, making sexuality sort of a central discussion point, a public issue, rather than just a private matter, um, which we'll talk about exactly how that works in a little bit, um, as well as reproduction and reproductive rights. So the issue of abortion was very much central to second wave feminism and did very much, and second wave feminism did very much culminate with the, the Roe v. Wade decision, at least in America, like when in fact a, a sort of re or agenda and, and like legislation by backdoor methods, admittedly, of how abortions can and should be conducted, um, how all that is supposed to work. And also, of course, the way that sexuality and, and relationships are supposed to proceed um, with a special focus on sexual harassment. Um, the sort of war on sexual harassment really would peak until the 90s with the third wave, but the second wave was very much aware of bringing this about and sort of keenly interested in, in navigating exactly how sexuality, how, you know, dating rights, in a manner of speaking, should work. Liberating women was not just a matter of getting them the ability to vote, in short. Liberating women meant sort of making everyone aware and responsible for the way that they can, can the way that men conducted themselves towards women let's put it that way we're still not at the point where you know there's widespread discussion of like of intersectionality that's that's going to be in a little while the important thing to remember here is that women are sort of raising up their personal lives their internal lives their sexual lives and their their dating lives and their you know reproductive lives and saying this needs to be a public issue and we require public um attention public protection in many cases um second wave feminism acknowledged that as long as women were sort of let to, or held responsible for their own sexuality, their own private lives, men could exploit this. Um, in short, if in fact the, the legal, legal attitude towards, you know, dating violence was, you know, hey, you take care of yourself, that left women in a very bad position. Um, if, you know, if somebody was accused of rape or if somebody was accused of sexual violence, you know, you would take them to court and the judge would be like, I don't want to hear about this. I, you know, that's your own business. You take care of it yourselves. There's no way to prove one way or the other. And the case would be thrown out. Um, it's the second wave feminists who largely are responsible for saying no. No, this needs to be legislated. There needs to be laws in place. There need to be laws protecting women from violence, from attacks, from being abused, from, you know, being sexually misused, from, you know, being controlled in their own households. They need to be protected from, you know, spousal abuse, and they need to be protected from dating violence. They need to be protected from all of these things. This is what second wave feminism was very much about. First wave feminists would have said, in large part, you know, give me some basic public rights and then I'll take care of myself. Second wave feminism said that's not good enough. Um, that 
isn't enough to protect women. Women need more than just this. The society is too structured against them, and the things that we have been quiet about for as long as we have, those things are becoming problematic. Those things are still hurting women, causing them to be treated as second-class citizens, and if we are, in fact, going to have any shot at equality, there need to be public protections in place for the women who are being abused and misused in this way. So notice that this ties very much in with the, what de Beauvoir is arguing here. Because de Beauvoir is not saying, you know, give us the right to vote and everything will be fine. She's not even arguing what Wollstonecraft did, where it's like, treat us as though we are equal human rational beings and everything will be fine. De Beauvoir is arguing that, no, women are in their position not because of their nature, not because of, you know, the, their inferiority in some sense. They're only this way because society is bent against them. There are all of these social, socially accepted practices that demean or, you know, that degrade women in some way. Women cannot be held up as equals in this society because society's sort of unspoken rules, the things that are not written in law books, are out to get women in, sort, in some sense. Um, women are very much at a disadvantage just in day-to-day, -day, normal, behind-closed-doors ways. And the only solution to this is to open those doors, to make sure that this becomes public notice, that nobody can get away with, you know, hitting women behind closed doors or, you know, mistreating them. Um, they cannot, you know, be considered free agents if somebody is allowed to take advantage of them and there is no recourse from them in the public sphere, no person that they can go to for help or for guidance, no protection offered by the government. They're making the private public, in a sense, and we will see this, too, in our two writers who, who largely come from this period, namely Shulamith Firestone and her uh, argument in the dialectic of sex, and Annette Byers' essay on unsafe loves. Both of them emphasize the sort of personal uh, dimension of women's lives and how it too can be used to exploit and, and misuse them. Um, so let's look at Firestone's essay from the dialectic of sex here. Um, just as, you know, Essentially, like, de Beauvoir was arguing about love and, and sort of understanding the way that women perceived love and how that was different from men, Firestone argues an even stronger position here. Notice that her initial question in the first paragraph, she says, a book on radical feminism that did not deal with love would be a political failure. For love, perhaps even more than childbearing, is the pivot of women's oppression today. I realize this has frightening implications. Do we want to get rid of love? This is the central question that Firestone is willing to ask and willing to argue for, in a sense. Um, where de Beauvoir was saying, you know, men and women love in fundamentally different ways, and the only way that they can, in fact, you know, love successfully is if that difference becomes solved, if they, in fact, become equals, if they, in fact, learn to love in the same way. Firestone is going a step farther and saying, is that possible, and if not, should we get rid of love entirely? Should we reject the way that we understand love typically? And where de Beauvoir tends to focus on the woman's perspective, how she subordinates herself to these men, how she uh, sort of, you know, like, psychologically tricks herself into functionally worshipping men, Firestone by contrast, starts with a perspective on men, the 
themselves on how men exactly treat women, how they abuse women, how they use women in their lives. Um, so notice, like the the two para the two paragraphs on page two forty eight, like after the first uh, incomplete paragraph, that women live for love and men for work is a truism. Notice that she is definitely going back to you know both Nietzsche and de Beauvoir here, uh, but her reference point is Freud. Freud was the first to attempt to ground this dichotomy in the individual psyche. The male child, sexually rejected by the first person in his attention, his mother, sublimates his his libido, his reservoir of sexual life energies, into long-term projects in the hope of gaining love in a more generalized form. Thus he displaces his need for love into a need for recognition. This process does not occur as much in the female. Most women never stop seeking direct warmth and approval. Now notice that where de Beauvoir argued that this is entirely a nurture thing and not a nature thing, Firestone seems to be arguing a bit differently. Notice that her perspective is that women are naturally inclined to find meaning in love relationships, where men are naturally inclined to find it in recognition, where men learn to sublimate, women do not. Where men learn to seek recognition, women still seek love. This is described as being a fundamental nature of human beings kind of thing with her reference to Freud here. This is just something that men and women do. Notice that she's not emphasizing that women are encouraged to love others, encouraged to self-sacrifice. Her argument instead is women, by their nature, are inclined to that self-sacrifice, that you know, subordination of themselves to men. And in here, she departs from de Beauvoir. De Beauvoir thinks that by fixing society we can fix love. Firestone does not seem to agree. Um, notice her next paragraph. There is also much truth in the cliches that behind every man there is a woman, and that women are the power behind, read Voltage in, the throne. Male culture was built on the love of women and at their expense. Women provided the substance of those male masterpieces, and for millennia they have done the work and suffered the costs of one-way emotional relationships, the benefits of which went to men and to the work of men. So if women are a parasitical class living off and at the margins of the male economy, the reverse too is true. Male culture was and is parasitical, feeding on the emotional strength of women without reciprocity. Notice what Firestone is describing here. She, she is effectively saying the same as what we've seen in Nietzsche and de Beauvoir, that women have this sort of fixation on love because that is all that is given to them. They have no economic or social worth in some sense. They do not have an outlet for their energy, whether sublimated or otherwise, in the world at large. Instead, they are forced, they are stuck behind the scenes. But notice that as a consequence, love ends up to being mutually parasitical. Men, on the one hand, are emotionally immature, and therefore rely on the emotional maturity of women in order to accomplish their masterpieces of art, literature, economy, whatever, while women, not being able to participate in the economy, have to rely on men for their economic stability and economic worth, while also providing 100% of the emotional support. So in a sense, both halves are parasitical. The men cannot be emotionally secure without the women. The women cannot be socially and economically solvent without the men. Both are taking advantage of each other, in a sense. 
both are unequally used in this relationship. And as much as Plato or Aristotle might way back in the past have said, hey, it's inequality in, you know, what specifically they're giving, but they are exchanging, you know, two different things at a roughly equal rate, Firestone does not frame it in those terms. Notice the term here is parasitical. Um, women are a parasite economically, where men are a parasite emotionally. But what Firestone is effectively saying here is that both of these relationships are bad. Both of them are wrong. Men need to grow up emotionally and, you know, be responsible for themselves emotionally. Women need to grow up economically and be able, through the law and otherwise, to support themselves economically. Both people need to become independent agents, not... De mutually dependent on one another for their various accomplishments. So notice how she's characterizing love here at the bottom of page 248. How does this phenomenon love operate? Contrary to popular opinion, love is not altruistic. The initial attraction is based on curious admiration, more often today envy and resentment, for the self-possession, the integrated unity of the other, and a wish to become part of the self in some way, today read, or intrude, or take over, to become important to that psychic balance. Notice that she's using Sartrean language here. Again, that wish to become part of the self, read, intrude, or take over. She, too, understands con or love in this language of conflict, the way that Sartre did. Again, departing from de Beauvoir, where de Beauvoir sort of imagines this ideal love that is possible between two equal human beings, Firestone is instead arguing, no, love is always, as Sartre described it, about conquest, about strife, about conflict, about the self trying to absorb the other. Love is the final opening up to or surrender to the dominion of the other, she says. The lover demonstrates the beloved how he himself would like to be treated. I tried so hard to make him fall in love with me that I fell in love with him myself. Thus, love is the height of selfishness. The self attempts to enrich itself through the absorption of another being. Love is being psychically wide open to another. It is a situation of total emotional vulnerability. Therefore, it must be not only the incorporation of the other, but an exchange of selves. Anything short of a mutual exchange will hurt one or the other party. Notice that this is roughly what de Beauvoir was arguing. We need equality. We need a perfect mutual exchange. No one getting the edge over one another. None of this, you know, subordination enslavement business instead is a mutual exchange. Now, notice she concludes there is nothing inherently destructive about this process. A little healthy selfishness would be a refreshing change. And notice the Firestone does characterize this as selfish. This mutual exchange, selfless though it may appear, is at the end of the day still selfish. It is still the self wishing to take over the other, but in this situation, in the ideal situation, both the beloved and the lover are giving the same amount to one another, and therefore there's sort of this equilibrium at stake, even if there is still this ongoing selfish conflict. But where, where de Beauvoir sort of gets away from this idea, rejects the idea of this selfish conflict as being at the heart of love, Firestone, on the other hand, embraces the selfishness of it. 
it would be a refreshing change. Love between two equals would be an enrichment, each enlarging himself through the other. Instead of being one, locked in the cell of himself with only his own experience in view, he could participate in the existence of another, an extra window on the world. This accounts for the bliss that successful lovers experience. Lovers are temporarily freed from the burden of isolation that every individual bears. But... Bliss in love is seldom the case. For every successful contemporary love experience, for every short period of enrichment, there are ten destructive love experiences, post-love downs of much longer duration, often resulting in the destruction of the individual or at least an emotional cynicism that makes it difficult or impossible ever to love again. Why should this be so if it is not actually inherent in the love process itself? Notice that while Firestone does have this idea of what love is supposed to look like, this mutual exchange, at the end of the day, she rejects it. She says that it is so infrequent, so unusual, that for every one case of decent, balanced love, there are ten instances of unbalanced. And while de Beauvoir would ultimately reject this entire model of how love works, Firestone concludes that the reason why this love is broken in this way while there is some dimension that seems to be connected to the nature of love itself, she does argue in, on page 250 that it is caused by an unequal balance of power. We have seen that love demands a mutual vulnerability or it turns destructive. The destructive effects of love occur only in a context of inequality. But because sexual inequality has remained a constant, however its degree may have varied, the corruption romantic love became characteristic of love between the sexes. Notice that she then goes on to explain this historical sort of situation. We see this sort of repetition of what Freud was talking about in his essay on psychical impotence, talking about how, you know, women have to be debased for men in order to appreciate them sexually, in order to have sex with them. So what is essentially happening here is Firestone adopts the Freudian perspective, acknowledges, you know, yes, men are engaged in either deifying women or debasing them in much the same way as Beauvoir was sort of arguing the same. And what we end up with is this woman who recognizes herself as this mystical, glorified being, much as the man was in Simone de Beauvoir's perspective, and her life, too, is a hell. Firestone concludes on 252, vacillating between an all-consuming need for male love and approval to raise her from her class objection to persistent feelings of inauthenticity when she does achieve his love. Just as de Beauvoir argued that uh, women elevate the men that they fall in love with, so Firestone points to the other side of the relationship, men idealizing the women they fall in love with or debasing them one of the two. In either case, we are once again back to a situation where no humans are involved, just monsters and gods. Um, and because people are not allowed to be people in these situations, everyone loses. Love becomes impossible. The inequality of the sexes becomes tantamount to the failure of love itself. So notice while she argues that it could theoretically be possible to eliminate the political context of love, her conclusion is considerably more pessimistic. Um, you'll notice that she comes to three conclusions on page 253 that she enumerates. First, and most sort of like blatantly, most aggressively, she states, men can't love. Um, and she asks, you know, it could be natural, it could be the result of male hormones, but, you know, we, in general, she acknowledges women traditionally expect and accept an emotional invalidism in men that they would find intolerable in a woman. Again, as de Beauvoir sort of had 
gotten to a little bit, um, but as Firestone has very much been stressing through her discussion of, you know, men idealizing women, men, you know, unable to get past their sort of Freudian roots, men in this parasitical relationship to women's emotionality, here we come to the ultimate conclusion. Men are incapable of love. They are stunted emotionally in a way that makes them completely incapable of equality in love. Men must either debase the woman or raise her up to godhood. They cannot accept a totally equal, totally comparable, totally, you know, on the same page woman as a partner. They're just not able to, either because of their emotional fragility or their ego or whatever. Um, as she writes a little bit later on page 253, we have seen why it is that men have difficulty loving and that while men may love, they usually fall in love with their own projected image. Most often they are pounding down a woman's door one day and thoroughly disillusioned with her the next, but it is rare for women to leave men and then it is usually for more than ample reason. It is dangerous to feel sorry for one's oppressor. Women are especially prone to this failing, but I am tempted to do it in this case. Being unable to love is hell. This is the way it proceeds. As soon as the man feels any pressure from the other partner to commit himself, he panics and may react in one of several ways. He may rush out and screw ten other women. He may consistently exhibit unpredictable behavior. When he is forced into an uneasy commitment, he makes her pay for it by ogling other women in her presence, comparing her unfavorably, etc., etc., etc. There are many variations of straining at the bit, she concludes on 254. Many men go from one casual thing to another, getting out every time it begins to get hot. And yet to live without love in the end proves entirely tolerable to men just as it does to women. The question that remains for every normal male is then, how do I get someone to love me without her demanding an equal commitment in return? Now, I admit I'm not terribly impressed with this depiction of men, but then I know that I am biased on this matter. I do tend to think that some men aren't as utterly, completely stymied by the threat of commitment as uh, Firestone seems to suggest here, but I also recognize that this is a major problem for many men, and I certainly don't consider myself normal, nor do I consider, you know, any experience that I might, that I might have to be sort of suggestive of experience totally. So while I am hesitant to sort of accept Firestone's really pessimistic account of men here, I think that it's a valid one to bring up at the very least. It's certainly an important perspective that needs to be considered. Up until now, we've had you know, lots of discussion of the ways that love could work. We've had discussion of the way that men and women love relationships can and should work. We've seen many kinds of imbalanced relationships called love. Here we see the sort of ultimate result of that, the logical endpoint, namely that one or the other simply cannot love at all. Um, where Nietzsche was saying that men and women love in different ways, and where de Beauvoir, you know, argues the same, that effectively men and women are engaged in two fundamentally different activities that we call by the same name, love, here we get the logical conclusion of that. Namely, one of these is love, and one of them is not. What men call love isn't love. It is, in fact, just possession, the same sort of property behavior that Nietzsche was talking about back in, you know, the joyful wisdom slash the gay science. Firestone calls men out, says that that's not love. Love is much more what women are doing. That subordination, that search for equality, that exchange that both de Beauvoir and Firestone are arguing for, and therefore men are excluded from this because they are too emotionally stunted to be able to participate in this. 
But notice, too, that this defines how women behave as well. So the two other conclusions she comes to is that women's clinging behavior is necessitated by their objective social situation, and that this situation has not changed significantly from what it ever was. So notice, in this situation where women are economically dependent on them, where they are nothing more than economic parasites, it is necessary for a woman to cling to her man, to, you know, manipulate him in, in this way. Since men are incapable of commitment, since they are terrified of actually giving as much to the woman as he expects from her, the woman therefore needs to cling, to manipulate, to, you know, talk endlessly with other women about how to sort of coerce men into behaving the way that she wants him to, to sort of trick him into commitment since that's apparently the key to the entire love relationship, since men are so reluctant to do this. Women cannot be allowed to, you know, let men wander in this sense. Women cannot afford to. They cannot be allowed to. As much as we want to say, you know, men and women are equal, and therefore, you know, it should be totally okay for a man to just sleep with as many women as, as he wants, while the woman that he is largely hanging out with is also sleeping with as many men as she wants, this is not possible, plausible, because of the economic necessities that men provide the wages, that men provide the money. Women need a man, and a man that is faithful to them, they cannot entrust themselves to, you know, just the whims of their emotional immaturity and the trust that they will provide for them because, at the end of the day, women cannot stand on their own. Once again, we come to a situation where society is at fault, but here Firestone seems to think that it is more complicated than that. That men, by nature, are incapable of love, and women, by nature, are incapable of a total equality with them as a consequence. Therefore, society needs to change to let women be independent on their own steam so they do not have to depend on emotionally immature men. Therefore, as a consequence, if men do want that emotional stability in life, they will recognize their own failings and they will not be socially you know, in independent, demanding that a woman stay by them and sort of holding them hostage with the money that that man makes. Instead, both will become independence, and that parasitism will disintegrate. Men will learn to love because they will need to learn to love in order to attract the woman that they need. And at the same token, a woman will not be reliant on men for their social stability, for their economic stability, and consequently, they'll be able to withhold their emotionality as they see fit. That's the world that Firestone sees, and if there is some sort of possible love here, some ideal version of love, that is the only circumstance in which it can come about. Her conclusion provisionally is, at the end of page 256, yes, love means an entirely different thing to men than to women. It means ownership and control. It means jealousy, where he never exhibited it before, where she might have wanted to him to. Who cares if she is broke or raped until she officially belongs to him? Then he is a raging dynamo, a veritable cyclone, because his property, his ego extension, have been threatened. It means a growing lack of interest coupled with a roving eye. Who needs it? In short, Firestone is saying men's understanding of love as possessive, as propertarian, we need to throw that right out. 
There is no way that that can be the basis for a healthy relationship. That is not love in any, you know, reasonable extent of the imagination. It is certainly not healthy, and it needs to be gotten rid of. And the only way that we can get rid of it is by giving women the rights to stand up on their own steam and not depend on men, because men basically are forcing women into this hostage situation, this whole marriage arrangement with women not being able to get, you know, sufficient wealth for themselves, sufficient property for themselves, forces men, or rather forces women to basically enslave themselves to men for their time and for their, for their uh, emotional support. Men otherwise emotionally stunted will not fix themselves until they are forced to by women's liberation, in short. Um, so I know this is fairly complex stuff, but it is also thoroughly, like, in, I guess, integrated into our perspective at this point. Like, this is why feminists in the 60s and 70s were arguing as strongly as they did. This is what has been achieved for women to be as liberated as they are nowadays. Um, as, you know, as limited as that might actually be. Just... Notice that Firestone's perspective on love is, once again, dependent on the societal attitude. Um, that the, how she characterizes it is sort of dependent on this moment in, in the, what is it, the 60s in this case? Is Firestone writing? I remember. I totally remember. I don't remember. Oh, well. At any rate, oh, here it is. 1970, straight up 1970, right smack in the middle of second wave then. Feminism. There we go. But yeah, in 1970, with that emotional or the financial dependence on men still very firmly in place, this is the world as as Firestone envisions it. This is the failure of feminism, the failure of love at this point that needs to be rectified. Um, now, buyer buyer is a bit of a different animal here. Where Firestone and de Beauvoir are very much arguing for their own understanding of sexuality as a sort of effort of reform, where love and changing the way we understand love is one component of, you know, reforming society in such a way that women are not as dependent on men as they, as they are in the, the 50s um, or the late 40s for de Beauvoir and the 70s for Firestone. Uh, Bayer is instead engaged in a much more history of philosophy standpoint. She is not engaged in the feminist agenda, if we can call it that. Like, I know that that language itself is very much sort of co-opted by, you know, conservative rhetoric and, and nonsense today. Suffice it to say that Bayer is not engaged in reform in some sense. There is a good bit of moralizing here, like she even sort of complains about that herself, that she, her discourse has degenerated into a sermon. Um, but where, you know, Firestone and de Beauvoir are trying to push forward feminism, trying to push society in a new direction, you know, are engaged in ethics first and philosophy second, Bayer is engaged in philosophy first and ethics second, or at least nominally. But I still think that she's interesting to read, especially because, as I emphasized, you know, in the last lecture, here in the 20th century, we were spending a lot of time discussing how these philosophers engage with the history of philosophy as much as we are interested in how they are engaging with the philosophy in their own time. Bayer is doing what we in this class should also be doing engaging with philosophy and understanding what the history of philosophy has sort of led us to, understanding our love, our relationships, our sexuality, our friendships in terms that would have been familiar to any of the philosophers that we've encountered and read in this class. 
as well as understand how some of those trends led to some of these perspectives. Bayer is doing just that. And I don't want to get too caught up in exactly what Bayer is arguing about in her essay, Unsafe Loves, but I am really keen to sort of trace the discussion here in its broad strokes, in part because I expect that at this point you are working on your paper in which you should be doing something very similar, namely, you know, talking about the history of philosophy and how the understanding of love has changed over time, in part because I think it does sort of contribute to this understanding of feminism and this feminist understanding of love as it's developing through the 20th century. Uh, Bayer just as, you know, de Beauvoir was sort of at the hinge point between first-wave feminism and second-wave feminism, Bayer is kind of late in the process on second-wave feminism. It is largely anticipating third-wave feminism, um, which we'll talk about momentarily. So we can see her very much grounded in the same understanding, looking at love relationally, looking at feminism relationally, trying to understand what women especially and what everybody in general are sort of boxed into doing in their relationships and how that needs to change in order for society to move forward and for real equality to be achievable for men and women. Um, so just as Firestone was arguing, you know, should we do away with love and ultimately con concluding that if love is to be defined by men, then absolutely yes, we need to get rid of it. Bayer is also asking, what is it to love another person and is it ever a good idea? But where Firestone is at the end of the day, seeing love from the perspective of, you know, men imposing their definition of love on everyone around them and sort of forcing women to accept their societal structure or perish, um, Bayer understands it much more philosophically speaking. She characterizes love as being sort of split down the middle in at least modern philosophy, although she does seem to hint that this is going on before modern philosophy as well, with her references to Plato and to Orthodox Christianity especially, uh, between, on the one hand, a theological interpretation of love, and on the other hand, a biological interpretation of love. Um, on the side of the theological interpretation, she lines up, on the one hand, Kant, as well as Plato, St. Augustine, and most importantly, Orthodox Christianity, Descartes, and Spinoza. And Spinoza and Kant we should be familiar with at this point. We don't see everything Kant has to say about love especially, although her, she extensively quotes, or at least references, many of Kant's thoughts in his lecture on friendship, which we did read. Um, notice that what uh, Bayer is essentially arguing here is that for Christianity, for Kant, for Descartes, for Spinoza, even for Plato to some degree in St. Augustine, we are looking at love as fundamentally theological, as having more reference to God than to other humans. And as we've seen in other feminist writers up until this point, both de Beauvoir and Firestone are very wary of any kind of inequalities creeping into the love relationship. If, in fact, the relationship between God and man is being used as the reference point for love, we can expect that this is going to be problematic for Bayer. Um, and indeed, she very much criticizes these perspectives. She calls them misamorists on page 48, sort of haters of love. Um, and notice that she characterizes it as the or she characterizes them by saying that the common feature of Kant, Descartes, Spinoza, the misamorists, is a strong sense that human persons are unlovable. 
We can love, but only our betters, and our fellow persons are rarely much better. So Kant can suppose that respect depends upon averting one's gaze from the possibly loathsome full actuality of the respectful person. Friendship and love between human persons is dangerous because it risks mutual knowledge. Now, in doing so, she's been emphasizing throughout that most of these thinkers are taking a thoroughly modern approach to love. They are talking about love in terms of respect, in terms of dignity, in terms of, you know, the autonomy of people. Um, and she is very much leaning on the Kantian philosophy to sort of characterize this. Notice, though, that she is drawing out these examples to draw attention to this particular view of philosophy and how potentially destructive it is. That all of these thinkers are, at the end of the day, arguing that love between humans is impossible. Kant is arguing that friendship between humans is an ideal, something to be aspired to, but not something that can be achieved in its own right, as we discussed in the class. But where Kant seems to think that that's perfectly okay, and we can build this philosophy anyway, and that love will always be flawed in this way, but, you know, best to, to hold it up as an ideal, Bayer rejects this, and instead argues that it is this perspective on love, the perspective of Kant with his sort of idealization of love as this unachievable ideal, Spinoza with love as sort of pointing to the Godhead, and as well as Orthodox Christianity arguing that, like, love comes from God and cannot be achieved among human persons normally. What she is concluding is that this puts way too much pressure on love. This turns love into exactly what de Beauvoir and Firestone are arguing about, namely this this sort of mutual idolization, this turning of humans into gods for the purpose of worshipping them and not treating them as human beings. In contrast to this, Bayer raises the subject of Hume, of Darwin, and ultimately of Freud, specifically stressing that Hume had a much more reasonable perspective on love, and in the treatise uh, on human nature, which unfortunately we didn't get a chance to read in this class, I am hoping to read that one through and maybe include it in future semesters. Um, Hume is much more reasonable in his expectations of love. He is not looking for this sort of divine, eternal, theological or philosophical love. Um, they are saying that love is fundamentally unsafe, and while Kant would say that that is grounds for avoiding it, while Spinoza and Descartes would say that this is grounds for you know getting rid of it, where Christianity would argue that because you know, it is unsafe because you can't be hurt by love. The only person to properly love is God, who will not hurt you. Bayer, on the other hand, is saying, no, love because it is risky. Hume knows that love is risky. Darwin knows that love is risky. Freud knows that love is risky. They are all very conscious of the fact that it is broken, and that it is between broken individuals, that you will become disappointed by love, that you will become hurt by love. Um, and as a consequence, the Love should not expect anything less. You cannot avoid that and sort of love from a distance the way that Kant does with his, you know, emphasis on, like, you should love only insofar as you can expect to be disappointed. Um, that you should always reserve some part of you uh, rather than entrusting yourself 100% to someone who you may not actually be able to trust. Hume is emphasizing, by contrast, and Bayer, by raising up Hume's voice, is stressing, of course you can't trust them. Love them anyway. Um, love them knowing full well that you will be hurt. Love them knowing full well that you might not be able to live up to your expectations. Love knowing full well that it might fall apart. Um, for Hume, love is a biological relationship, not a theological relationship. It is not expected to be more, some eternal bond, some, you know, theological perfection. It is not 
dependent on God. It is a human relationship, a mortal relationship. It is doomed to failure and fallibility, and that's okay. If we go in expecting that, we can still get a lot out of love. So notice that where de Beauvoir and Firestone are arguing for this equality, Bayer is essentially doing the same. By lowering the expectations of love, by turning love from something, you know, sublime and perfect and, and holy into something, you know, basic to the human condition, something biological, something purely sexual, something that is just chemical and doesn't need to be anything more, Bayer makes love admirable again. Um, as she says on page 446, their unsafe sex may be a fitting expression of their, in any case, unsafe love. Risking their own health is something lovers have always done. Think of all the women who died in childbirth and who in loving knew quite well the chances that they would so die. Think of the venereal and other diseases that spouses got from one another and passed on to their children. Our loved ones inherit from us and sometimes inherit our diseases. Of course, a lover will, if she lovingly can, avoid communicating any disease to her loved one and to her child. But if it takes withdrawal from the love relation to do that, then she will not have opted for safe loving, however safe her sexual and other practices. It is not very safe to love another. If safety is what one values most, the womb or the grave are the best places for one, and between them, one will want the best approximations one can get to these places where one is sheltered from or beyond hurt. One will opt for places where one cannot respond emotionally to the emotions and other states of mind of others, cannot be pleased by their pleasure, disappointed at their lack of pleasure, hurt by their indifference, angry at their failure to be avenged by or angered by insults, saddened by their choice to withdraw rather than forgivably harm, and so on. There is no safe love. But should we therefore avoid love? We should of course do what we can to protect third parties, and love there are always third parties, future lovers, children who may be born to one of the lovers, their lovers, and their children, etc., etc. But if all the world, except misamorous philosophers, is to keep loving lovers, it will have to come to accept risk, too and to be willing to share the risk, and to help care for the victims of the worst risks. And while, again, I want to stress that Byron is doing more historical analysis, you know, dividing all of our philosophers into the theological and the biological loves, and praising the biological lovers over the theological lovers, notice that Byron is making a really sort of keen point here. We put enough pressure on love that we expect perfection from lovers and from those lovers, the, the people that those lovers love, and as a consequence, we make it impossible to live up to that standard. Um, Kant observed the impossibility of that standard and said, you know, it is impossible, therefore, you know, we should guard ourselves. But Bayer is arguing the exact opposite here. Yes, that level of love is not possible. We should have a more human expectation for love, a more human standard for love. And this goes for both of us, and we should keep this in mind. Like, to sort of put this in a more subjective, more ground perspective, I think of all of the people who, you know, sort of criticized themselves, like left a relationship not because they, you know, had been hurt or because somebody else had done something wrong to them, but because, you know, they felt like they were not holding up their end of the bargain. It's not you, it's me, they say. What Byron is suggesting is that that is not necessarily a legitimate outlet for love. Yes, there are circumstances where you do need to leave because your own circumstances have taken you beyond the pale of your relationship, or you can't sustain it anymore, or it's exhausting, or whatever. But at the same time, do not leave a relationship because you think you're going to hurt the other person. That's part of the risk. 
as much as when you go into an essay called Unsafe Loves, written by, you know, a woman in the 80s, and I sat there expecting, you know, oh, we're going to talk about rape, and we're going to talk about, you know, women being hurt by other people. No, she's actually saying some lack of safety is necessary in love. You have to love recklessly in some way, because otherwise it isn't love. You will have to take a chance. You will have to make a leap of faith. You will have to recognize that it may and probably will fail. And the only thing keeping us from doing that is the fact that we hold love up to some ridiculously high standard that, frankly, isn't achievable. Just as, you know, de Beauvoir is saying that love needs to be about equality, Byron is going another step and saying it's not just about inequality, it's also about a recognition that love isn't transcendent, that love shouldn't be transcendent, that love should be defined biologically or chemically, that love should be allowed to anyone because we're allowed to screw up and we are allowed to you know, break things, and we should be encouraged to do so because love has always involved these things. You cannot escape this dimension of what love is. Therefore, love unsafely. And as much as the essay would seem to suggest that an unsafe love is one that you don't want to undertake, Byer is ultimately concluding that, yes, that's exactly what you want to do. No love is safe, and therefore love. Love unsafely. Love knowing that there may be risks. Love knowing that you may contract diseases. Love knowing that, you know, it is dangerous. And she's writing in the 80s when AIDS is going around. Like, there are real, actual dangers going on here. And yet she seems to be very much suggesting love anyway. Because it's so important to the human experience. Because it's so constitutive to who we are. Yes, take precautions. Don't be an idiot. But at the same time, don't guard your heart to the point that you cannot love. She is essentially taking the exact opposite track from the Buddhists that we talked about ages ago in this class, where they said because connections are painful, because any time that you commit yourself to another person, you risk harm, therefore avoid all connections, Byron is saying exactly the opposite. No, make your connections. Make your love relationships. Fall in love. Do so foolishly. Do so aggressively. Do so recklessly. You will be rewarded for it. And it won't matter in the long run how much you suffer as a consequence. It will still be worth it in your mind. Love unsafely, in short. Now, we are very much coming to the end of the class, and we haven't even talked about third-wave feminism, much less fourth, and whether or not such a thing exists. Um, third-wave feminism is very much kind of an extension of what Bayer is talking about here. Um, it is largely been argued to be an extension of second-wave feminism generally, um, that much as second-wave feminism was interested in those sort of, sorts of general societal changes, the sort of, you know, let's make the private public, let's you know, talk about what's going on behind closed doors to women, third-wave feminists had sort of doubled down on this, but their attitude had largely changed. Where the second wave feminists tended to emphasize, you know, women's equality to men and sort of women as being, you know, everybody's good at business, everybody's good in the bedroom, everybody's good at social interaction as men, sort of raising up women's successes and, and sort of looking at them as though they're equal to men. Third wave feminism very largely staked out a claim for women as women in a different way. This was sort of the reappropriation age where, you know, the derogatory terms like bitch or cunt were sort of, you know, gradually reabsorbed by women as a way of sort of talking to one another and, and like, affirming one's 
uh, each other's womanhood, womanness. Um, this is the age of like riot girl music and, and all those sort of 90s women punk bands. Um, and it's also very much an effort towards intersectionality. There's a great deal of movement in the 90s towards, you know, incorporating women of different backgrounds, women of color, um, women who are also lesbians or who are bisexual or transgendered in some way. Um, feminism in the 90s focused a lot on sort of like making sex positive and talking openly about one's sexuality, even aggressively about one's sexuality, especially because up until this point, women's sexuality had largely been a matter of taboo. Nobody talked about such things. How dare you? Like, men had their locker room conversations, but women were expected to be silent on the subject. Now this kind of aggressive sexuality was an important part of women being women of expressing their womanhood, of expressing their, their femininity. And this met with a lot of criticism. Like, there was actually a lot of frustration between second-wave feminists who, you know, were, like, talking and in, in, in lecturing in the 60s through the 80s, like ex-boomers um, who had, you know, grown up during the 50s, peaked in the 60s and 70s, and were now, you know, sort of practicing feminism as this this sort of angry, I, I want my rights sort of attitude, whereas, you know, the 90s feminists were increasingly crass and, and like, vulgar and sort of self-possessed, and there was a lot of friction between the two, which, you know, that's what happens when you have multiple different attitudes on, on how your movement should work. Again, like with all things, no movement is totally unilateral. Feminists, too, have a lot of disagreements about how feminism should look and how to go about making that work. Um, the other thing that we should keep in mind is that it was very concerned with sexual harassment. Like, I mentioned that second-wave feminists were interested in sexual harassment, for sure, and that was a thing. Uh, but it really did not peak until the third wave in the 90s, where, you know, suddenly like a spotlight was very much being shined on, on women being sort of harassed and abused in the workplace, and a lot of legislation kind of came out of this time period. Um, but after the third wave, we get kind of, well, in 2001 we have another war, and of course things get kind of hyper-conservative for a little while. Um, but with the advent of the internet, feminism changed yet again into what is nominally called the fourth wave in the 2010s-ish, um, where the emphases now were less on sexual harassment and, and sort of um, the, like, uh, like the suffrage and the basic issues that had largely been resolved by first and second wave feminism. But now a lot of it has to do with women... How do I put this? Um, we have the Me Too movement with sort of spotlighting how women have been abused and how men should be held accountable for what they have been doing to women. So again, sort of as an extension of the sexual harassment discussion, we are now talking openly about rape and rape culture and the sort of assumptions underlying that. Um, we are also very keenly aware of the inequality in, in the pay scale, how women are making effectively 70% of what a man makes doing the same job, and how that needs to be addressed. Um, but the organization methods at stake, while the first wave and second wave and even the third wave largely had to meet in person now that the internet is, is a thing, fourth wave feminism has largely been organized and, in some uh, respects, conducted online. Um, feminism, you know, has sort of morphed again in, in this particular form. Um, but what I want to sort of stress about the fourth wave, especially with regards to Virginia Held's The Ethics of Care, um, is that increasingly we are seeing 
you know, the, the sort of hopes of Bayer and Firestone and, and de Beauvoir being realized. Um, this effort to make relationships and love relationships especially a matter of equality is gradually becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and at the same time as this is happening, as the fourth wave is sort of kicking off and the third wave is sort of winding down, Held and several other philosophers are actually pioneering a whole new perspective on philosophical ethics itself, an entirely new attitude known as the ethics of care, which is largely the term defined by Virginia Held in this essay here, which is part of her overall book, The Ethics of Care, um, which is very much sort of born out of feminism and is sort of posed as a rival to many conventional ethical systems that existed in the past, like Kantian deontology or like utilitarianism. Um, notice that Held, as much as she is describing sort of the paradigm that the ethics of care takes, she is always posing it against those systems and arguing that those conventional systems are broken in some way broken in ways that the ethics of care specifically solves. So notice that the five points that Held brings up. First, the central focus of the ethics of care is on the compelling moral salience of attending to and meeting the needs of the particular others for whom we take responsibility, such as children or the elderly. Um, where so much of old-school moralism, old-school ethics was focused again on that you know, respect logic of Kant and of those other sort of modern philosophers, the same people that Bayer is criticizing in her Unsafe Loves essay, here Held is directly calling those people out, saying we need to stop talking about ethics purely in terms of rational agents interacting with one another, because not everybody is on that level playing field. Some people are disadvantaged in the social sphere, specifically children, specifically the elderly, and especially those who are mentally ill in some way, um, as well as women and people of color, people who are disadvantaged in one way or another, and therefore cannot be expected to either be treated as rational agents on an equal footing with all other rational agents, or be treated as rational agents, because they frequently are not. Um, they need a boost, in short, and we are responsible for those people who we have disadvantaged in some way, people who cannot speak up for themselves. The ethics of care recognizes we have an obligation to, to put it in a different way, the underprivileged, um, those who cannot do it for themselves. Second, in the epistemological process of trying to understand what morality would recommend and what it would be morally best for us to do, the ethics of care values emotion rather than rejects it. Once again, where all those modern philosophers were arguing the cold rationality, the calculus of utilitarianism, or the categorical imperative of deontology, here we are emphasizing how you feel is a valid and important indicator of your responsibilities and of your moral requirements. It is not to be rejected anymore. Um, notice, too, that this, again, is reflected in feminism in the discussion we've had so far. Remember Firestone talking about how men were emotionally parasitical on women. In, in a woman-centered ethic, or at least a woman-balanced ethic, emotionality should take, if not center stage, then at least an important, significant role. Um, emotion isn't to be ignored anymore. Philosophy isn't just about rationality anymore. Third, the ethics of care rejects the view of the dominant moral theories that the more abstract the reasoning about a moral problem, the better. 
notice that for all of those modern philosophers, they were very much indebted to what uh, Nietzsche once called the mummification of philosophy, turning everything into an eternal example that could apply for all time. Instead, the ethics of care is much more interested in concrete examples, and specifically concrete relationships. Um, it is not just, you know, what do you do when you are faced with the prospect of murder? Let us boil down our action to the most abstract sense, the way that Kant talks about it. No, keep it concrete. Recognize the, the various, you know, contexts and circumstances surrounding it. You cannot divorce your ethical behavior from those circumstances, from that context. You have to keep it in mind. Fourth, um, like much feminist thought in many areas, it reconceptualizes traditional notions about the public and the private. Remember how I've been talking about how many of these reforms were an effort to sort of take what had been private and make it public. Turn, you know, the things happening behind closed doors and bring them out into the public eye. Whether it's second wave feminism arguing that, you know, women needed to be uh, protected by the government from spousal abuse or from, you know, domestic violence in one way or another, to the third wave feminism shining a spotlight on sexual harassment, to the fourth wave feminism shining a spotlight on rape survivors and, you know, sexual violence in other ways. In the ethics of care, the same is true. The public and the private need to be mixed. We need to be willing to discuss issues formerly kept private. Um, we cannot let men and people who are currently in power decide the agenda of what gets to be talked about and what cannot, because clearly they will protect their own interests. They will, you know, again, close the door to make sure that what they are doing isn't seen, which is not acceptable and not moral. And lastly, the fifth characteristic of the ethics of care is the conception of persons with which it begins. The ethics of care usually works with a conception of person, persons as relational, rather than the self-sufficient independent individuals of the dominant moral theories. The ethics of care, in short, recognizes that our obligations, our, our responsibilities, our morality is very much rooted in our relationships. Our familial relationships or the relationships that we build, i.e. friendships or romances, all of that should in fact be discussed and should in fact be considered rather than this, again, world of rational agents where everybody is equal and nobody should be treated preferentially. The ethics of care is all about preferential treatment. It is all about this sort of de-universalization, this turning your life back into a life that connects and intersects with a bunch of other lives and that your obligation to those lives comes first before your sort of, as Kierkegaard would put it, love of neighbor. Um, so, you know, Held is arguing directly against Kierkegaard here, saying that, you know, the love of nature is, as Kierkegaard pointed out, unnatural, um, and that instead our, our morality should be focused on our relationships. Um, again, this is hardly complete, and I know that we've already gone over time here, there's a lot more to feminism than even I have drawn out here. And again, I'm sort of poorly schooled in this subject matter as much as I've tried to present as much as I can here. Um, suffice it to say that feminism has brought a lot of new perspectives to the subject of love. And in the 20th century has been one of the most bountiful, flourishing branches in the philosophy discussing the subject of love. Um, there is a lot to be said here, a lot to be understood and examined. Um, and a lot that we just don't have time to talk about, unfortunately. Um, so for next time, we're going to turn our attention and sort of, like, growing out of this whole intersectional um, philosophy of love 
as as told by the feminists, there comes to be a sort of branching theory in the queer theory dimension as well. And if anything, I am even less schooled on the subject of queer theory, but I'm going to do my level best to, again, introduce it and at least talk about it rather than remain silent. Um, so for next time, we're going to talk about two major sort of thinkers in queer theory, namely Michel Foucault, who we've talked about before and who I feel fairly comfortable talking about. He has numerous essays that I want to talk about, talking about sexuality and love, especially as it sort of interacts with um, the sort of homosexual world in the 80s that Foucault is familiar with, as well as we're going to write, uh, read a little bit of Warner's The Trouble with Normal, uh, which I think is just incredibly valuable for understanding like how sexuality is perceived in the 20th and 21st centuries, um, as well as sort of recharacterizing a lot of those perspectives on love and perspectives on sexuality that we have definitely been discussing in the past. Finally, we get to put the lie to Freud in, in some sense. So I look forward to talking with you about that next time.